I actually am as pleased as punch to see anybody here this morning. I didn't know how many there would be. And I thought, perhaps having come back from camping, that I should preach a message on camping from the scriptures as God's people have often dwelled in tents and are sojourners on this earth. Those of you who stayed back because you like your own bed and the comforts of home, a warm shower, well, what can I say? You're wise and it's probably a good decision. You're not as weary as I am this morning. But uh, anyway, half the church at least is up there having a good time and uh, I, I can vouch for that and we're grateful that they could gather together up there in the mountains and Charles will be preaching this morning a message to them. Uh, it's been a, been a joy. Well, there are very few things in this life, if you think about it, that live up to their billing. Every day we are bombarded with advertisements for everything from medications to machines. We're promised that this thing will be the ultimate. It will deliver the day. It will never break. It will work forever. And you only have to pay $19.95. But wait, you can get two for the same price. Just pay shipping and delivery. And everything is, is good to go. And over and over again, we are disappointed by those very same products, aren't we? <laughs> Amen. And the truth is, if we're honest, oftentimes our uh, disappointment transcends just those material objects and we find that we are disappointed in people. People let us down, people that we have trusted in. You know, when you find something that is reliable, when you find someone who is reliable, you stick with it. Timothy was one such man for the Apostle Paul. Timothy was a man of proven worth. He was a man we know from the scriptures who was taught the truth early in his life from his mother and his grandmother, both of whom were Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know from the 16th chapter of Acts where we see Paul's ministry to the church at Philippi, we read in the first couple of verses that when Paul came to Derbe and Lystra, a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, note this, he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted this man to go with him. And he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Timothy was a young man of renown, probably in his late 20s and early 30s. Timothy was a man of proven worth, and Paul wanted him with him. The two of them labored together in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Berea, in Corinth, in Ephesus, and Timothy is with Paul in Rome, even as Paul is on house arrest and facing the death penalty for his faith in Christ. Paul was pleased with Timothy. He delighted in Timothy. Timothy was to him a son. 
He was Paul's right-hand man, and he was always serving him in the cause of Christ. You see that passage by passage, text by text. Timothy ranked himself under Paul as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ to do whatever Paul asked him to do. So as we come this morning to a text, we come to a text that, frankly, if we didn't believe in expository preaching, probably we wouldn't preach. There are many such passages in the Scripture, aren't there, that you come to and you say, well, why is this in the text of Scripture? What what does this have to do with anything? How does this apply to my life? Well, the Spirit knows better than us, and I trust that you will find that these things do apply to our lives. Let's take our Bibles and take a look at Philippians chapter 2. And we'll pick up, actually, just by way of context, in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. Our Lord, this is your word, none of it wasted, not a word of it. Every last word is God-breathed and for our profit. And so we pray, Lord, in faith that you would teach us, that you would grow us, that these words would in fact impact us more deeply than we might expect, that we might be found pleasing to you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the Philippians were a church, weren't they, struggling with unity. They were wrestling among themselves. They were struggling with complaining against one another, and therefore Paul tells them to stop. He's concerned with unity in the church. He's concerned that they maintain that unity in the bond of peace, which was established by the Spirit of God. And so Paul here takes this up with them and he, he says, look, you guys need to remember the fact that you were born of the Spirit of God and in Christ as you were taken out of this dark world and out of the kingdom of darkness and out of the devil's uh, bondage and out of bondage to sin, you were actually placed into, baptized into the family of God. You were baptized into the church. You were unified with the body of Christ. And this is a piece, frankly, that many in the church today still don't get. 
Many who profess Christ still don't understand this, that you were saved from something and to something, that you were pulled out of something and placed into something else. And so each of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ have been baptized into the body of Christ, into the church, and we are therefore called to be one. We are called to be unified. And unlike worldly organizations, our unity is not something that is simply born of compromise in the interest of, of the organization. No, our unity is something that is organic. It is something that is in us by the Holy Spirit. We have been knit together, if you will, as one, which is why the text of Scripture calls us to be diligent to preserve that unity. We don't create it. We preserve it. It's a unity where Christ's people are found, according to Ephesians 4, as those in one body and one spirit with one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. We're unified by the Spirit of God, baptized into one people, gathered around the truth of the word of God, the revelation of God, that faith once for all delivered to the saints. And unlike the world, Christ's people are not divided by ethnic distinctions or into economic groups. We don't get too wrapped up about gender distinctions. None of that stuff that you hear on the evening news is true of the church of Christ. We are one people. Galatians 3.28 says it's a, it's a unity in which there is no distinction. There is no Jew or Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And so we seek to preserve that unity. And I've been emphasizing this point, and I will stick with it. That unity and the peace that has been established among God's people is to be highly valued by God's people. Each one of us individually taking care, prizing what Christ has purchased for us with his blood. Unity and peace were two graces that were hard won. They were really expensive. It cost Jesus that precious blood. And this was a challenge for the Philippians, and so it is a challenge for us, and it is a challenge for every true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says to the Philippians, look, the answer to all of this selfishness is that you, that you put it off, all of this warlike behavior, all of this argumentation, all of this disputing and contention. You need to put off selfishness and you need to embrace the humility that we see evidenced in the Lord Jesus Christ, that selflessness of Jesus. And he puts Jesus on display, doesn't he, in that fantastic passage there beginning in verse six, which talks about the Lord existing in the form of God and didn't regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. And, and so it goes on that the Lord Jesus is upheld as the very, the very greatest example of humility. And then Paul speaks at the end of that section 
or in the middle of that section we just read in, in verse 17, he begins to speak of himself as one being poured out as a drink offering. He's speaking about the fact that he may die on account of the Philippians' faith. He's going to be poured out. And he says that he's poured out, he sacrifices, but he does that with joy. He wants the Philippians to know that he, he, like Jesus, gladly engages the work of sacrifice on behalf of the church. And then he's going to turn to two others. He's going to turn and talk today about Timothy, and next week, Lord willing, we'll see Epaphroditus. We need an Epaphroditus in this church, by the way. Somebody needs to have a son and name him that, but I'll give you a week to think about it, all right? It's important for us to remember as we read these things that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes as you and I write. He writes with his thinking being connected and logical. Don't be so fixed on chapter divisions and verse divisions that you just think that somehow out of this, Paul was going along, talking about Christ, talking about unity. He goes, I, you know, I ought to say something about Timothy. Timothy doesn't have enough ink in this book. That is not the way Paul came to this. This is all tied together. And so it raises this, this question, really, why does Paul feel compelled to send Timothy to the Philippians? Well, we're going to try and answer that question here in a few minutes. I want to make this point, though. If you look back at chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, you remember this, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and that's uh, really he's saying since there is encouragement in Christ, you've experienced it. I know you have, Paul says. And if you're in Christ, you've known the, the consolation, the comfort of his love. And if you're in Christ, you've known that fellowship of the Spirit, and you've known that affection and compassion Paul says those are the things, beloved, that you need to be majoring in. You guys need to, to, to as, he, as he says right there in verse 2, make his joy complete by being of the same mind, the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. I don't want you to do anything from those motivations. He says to them then that I'm sending T Timothy to you and the reason really is in verse 18, you remember where he says, I urge you to rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Philippians, I know you're suffering here for Christ too. In the same way that I'm suffering for Christ, I want you to share your joy in that suffering with me. Now, how are they going to do that? How are they going to share their joy with Paul? They couldn't FaceTime. They couldn't make a phone call. In that day and age, you had to have somebody come in person. And so Paul is thinking through this. He's making plans. And so he wants to encourage the Philippians, and he wants to receive their encouragement in return. And so in verse 19, our text for today, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus Christ to send Timothy to you shortly. What Paul is saying is, look, I've got plans I've got an aim here. I've got a purpose. I've been strategizing. I've been thinking through this. And I've got somebody I'm going to send to you. 
He says, note that, that he hopes in the Lord Jesus. That's just Paul's humble way of saying, this is my plan, but it's submitted to the Lord, and I know that this may not be the way that the Lord has it, but if, if, if you ask me what's going to happen here in the near future, I plan on sending Timothy to you. Now, why did he want to send him? Well, we're told. I hope in the Lord Jesus Christ to send Timothy to you shortly so that, so that I may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. I'm sending Timothy to you to encourage you, and I want to be encouraged when I learn of your condition. And as I've said, there are a number of reasons why Paul wants to send Timothy in particular and not someone else. But the the main point Paul mentions here is that he wants to have encouragement when Timothy returns with the news that the Philippians are still living well, they're walking in Christ, they're living obediently. And all of that contention, they've given up their grumbling, they've given up their disputing. They're laboring to serve Jesus aright and walk in a manner worthy of their calling. So Paul's hopeful about this. Now the question is, why does Paul want to send his son in the faith, Timothy? Why not anybody else? Well, the text gives us three reasons that Paul wanted to send Timothy in particular. And I'm going to put it to you this way because I think it will help you to think about this more from the vantage point of how this applies to your own life. In Timothy, what we find are three admirable perspectives that exist in a humble servant of Christ. Three admirable perspectives that exist in a humble servant of Christ. Of Christ. Remember, that's the dominant theme here. Humility that promotes unity. That's what Timothy is being recommended to the Philippians for. Think about this with me for a minute. Why does Paul take the time to explain all this rationale to the Philippians? Why don't you say, I'm sending Timothy? So be good to the guy. Leave the light on for him. Why does he go through and explain all this thinking about who Timothy is? And I think the obvious answer is that he is, Timothy is here being upheld by Paul, commended by Paul. He's being put up, if you will, so that the Philippians will, will receive Timothy as they would receive Paul himself. The Philippians loved Paul. They wanted Paul to come, but Paul is detained And so he really has no other option but to send Timothy. And I think he spills all this ink about Timothy because he's recommending to the Philippians that Timothy is an exemplary leader. He is somebody who ought to be loved and received and respected and even imitated by the Philippians. Do you know Hebrews 13, 7? It says, remember those who led you who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. He doesn't just say carte blanche, remember everybody who ever opened up the word of God to you. He says, remember those who were your leaders, remember those who taught the word of God to you, and think about their conduct. If their conduct measured to their teaching, again, not perfectly, but if by and large they prove to be examples to the flock, then imitate them. And this is why I think Paul is building up Timothy in the Philippians' eyes. They knew Timothy. They had met him. That's clear in our text. 
But according to 1 Peter 5.3, pastors are to prove to be examples to the flock, and Timothy is just that kind of man. Timothy is the kind of Christian, frankly, that we ought to aspire to be. And so we find in him these three admirable perspectives that exist in a humble servant of Christ. Here's the first one. Timothy had an attitude of genuine concern for the church of Christ. Timothy had an attitude of genuine concern. Not hypocritical concern, not I put it on on Sunday concern. Timothy had a genuine concern for the church of Christ. Look at verse 20. For I have no one else of kindred spirit. That is an amazing statement when you think about it. No one, Paul? I have no one. I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Now there's no question that Timothy, or Paul loved having Timothy with him. The fellowship that they shared together, remember Paul was on house arrest, he could receive visitors, Timothy could come and be with him for a period of time. The encouragement he received from Timothy, the insight, the mutuality in, in the work of the ministry, the help that Timothy was. Timothy was nearly a constant companion of the apostle Paul. But you see, for Paul, there's something more important than his comfort, even when he's in the dire circumstances he's in. What matters to Paul more is the faith of the Philippian church. Paul is a man who is about the well-being of the Philippians. He said that. His great concern in verse 225, I'm sorry, 125, was, was that he might remain and continue with them for the progress and joy in the faith. You see, Paul wanted them to grow and to know fullness of joy in serving Christ. So Paul had great affection for these people. He wanted to see them. And undoubtedly, he would have gone himself, but he couldn't. And so he, he says, look, Timothy is the one man I can trust to care for you in the way Christ would care for you. He was the only person, if you will, in Paul's circle in Rome that could shepherd the flock. There was no one else who could do it in the way it ought to be done. And Paul uses the word, he says, Timothy alone is a kindred spirit. And you know what that means, if even just intuitively. It literally means one soul. They shared the same soul. These men shared one mind. Their hearts beat as one as they considered the ministry to the Philippians. And Paul could send Timothy because, in essence, sending Timothy was sending himself. They were that tightly knit. Let me give you just one example of another statement by Paul regarding Timothy. Look over at 1 Corinthians and chapter 4. You're going to have to turn your pages loudly today because there aren't as many people here, and it always encourages me. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 14. Don't tear them. Paul writes, I do not write these things to shame you. You remember that the Corinthians were one bunch, weren't they? And Paul had to reprove them and rebuke them in many ways. And he says to them, I don't write these things to shame you. That's never the aim of a true shepherd. 
But I, I want to put these things in your mind. I come to admonish you as my, look at this, beloved children. It was a familial thing. Paul's heart was enlarged towards the Corinthians, and he appeals to them. And he says, for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Paul preached the gospel to the Corinthians, and he was their spiritual father, and he's appealing to them as a father would to his children. And he says, therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. Children should follow in the steps of their father. Verse 17, for this reason I have sent to you Timothy. Why, Paul? Well, he is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Get that? He's beloved and he's faithful. And he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. You see, for, for Paul to send Timothy was in essence to send himself. And I want to just make, by way of application, two simple observations here. Paul in the book of Romans speaks in chapter 16 about the many believers who are there. He names many of them by name. There were a number of believers here in Philippi. We know that as, or in Rome uh, as he writes to uh, Philippi. And yet, as Paul begins to think about who would truly represent the interests of Christ, who can I really entrust to go over to Philippi and, and, and love them and shepherd them as they ought to be loved and shepherded, he says, I have one man. And I, I think that does speak to something that I found to be a reality in the church. And I think many of you, as you think about your own lives and your own spheres of influence and the, the businesses in which you work, or perhaps as a, as a mother wanting to uh, maybe have to go to a doctor's appointment and you have to entrust your children to somebody, there's not a massive list, is there? It's not hundreds of people long. I'll just leave the kids with whoever. Find some hitchhiker on the street, pick them up, leave them with the kids at the park for a while. That's not the way you go about this. You see, this, this points to a reality in life, beloved, that there aren't that many people who are truly faithful, who can truly be trusted to the core. I think life just teaches you that. There aren't that many go-to people, which is why the saying exists that if you want to get something done right, you've got to what? Yeah, exactly. But this ought to point us to some other fact, and that is this, that we ought to strive to be these kind of people. We ought to strive to be like Timothy. It ought to be our ambition to be that trustworthy, to be that like-minded, to be, to be one who is so faithful in the carrying out of our Lord's duties that we could be trusted by anybody. I had somebody say to me once that the thing they valued most in an individual was the fact that they could, they could pass something, put some responsibility on them, and then forget it because they knew it would be carried out and to the nth degree, to satisfaction. You see, Paul was that confident in Timothy 
Paul was confident that Timothy would tend the need of the sheep and not simply indulge himself. This is what he means by saying that Timothy was genuinely concerned for the church. Who else is genuinely concerned for the church? Jesus is genuinely concerned for his bride, for the church. Paul was genuinely concerned. He was given to Christ's people. And so it is here with Timothy that he is sacrificially given to Christ's people. In fact, this word concerned may be too mild a translation. It's the same word that's used in Philippians 4, 6 for anxiety. Paul was speaking of Timothy and saying one thing that we share in common is that there is not a sinful anxiety, but there is a a deep and earnest concern. This occupies our hearts and minds. The church matters to us intensely. You recall that Paul said that above all of the physical persecutions that he had endured, at the end of that passage in 2 Corinthians 11, he says there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Same word, noun form. That's what weighed Paul down most. It wasn't the beatings. It wasn't the night or two in the deep. It wasn't the lashings. It wasn't the, the cold and the, the privation. The greatest weight of his life was concern for the church. Again, I want to continue to just point this out because I think this challenges modern-day American evangelicalism. Where it is enough to know that I'm a sinner, Jesus died for sinners, I'm in heaven, done deal. That's all the deeper I need to grow. That's all I need to be concerned about. I'm taken care of. I'm good. Maybe I make some sort of loose attachment to the church. Maybe I sort of drift in, drift out. I'm at this church one day. Uh, we, we met a guy uh, a, a few weeks ago who, who mentioned that he goes to a different church every Sunday. Beloved, that is not God's will and direction for your life. Christ's people are his great priority. The church is at the center of everything that God is doing in this world. You get that, right? This is his prized possession. This is the pearl. This is his gem. Not just Foothill. I'm talking about his people. I'm not talking about a place, a building, an address. His people are his great treasure. And my question to you that I think comes out of this text is is does this attitude that Paul and Timothy share, can you say, yeah, I'm like-minded with them? The church, Christ's people matter to me deeply. I'm vested. I'm burdened. I pray. I give. I serve. I'm, I'm, I'm relationally committed to the people that God has providentially put around me. So many today with just casual apathy to the church. So many today just think of church as, as maybe membership, but mostly just it's a place I attend on Sundays. And you might say, well, yeah, this is Timothy, this is Paul, they're pastors, they're called to be this way, you're called to be this way, the other pastors at Foothill are called to be this way, but beloved, I want to argue that Paul is upholding Timothy and he is saying to the church at Philippi, here's a guy that you need to pattern your life after. Here's a 
as he patterns his life after me, and as I pattern my life after Christ, and this thing just trickles down through the ages, which is why Paul says, as to love of the brethren, I have no need to teach you that. That came packaged with your salvation. One of the truest tests as to whether you are genuinely in the kingdom of heaven is to consider whether or not you have a sincere and deep love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. John comes back to that over and over and over again in, the, in, the, in, in, in his first epistle. How do you know that you're in the kingdom of God? How do we know that we truly belong to him? We love the brethren. This is a good thing. Christ did not save you, loved ones, so that you would continue to live for yourself. Christ saved you that you might serve him and others. And nobody but nobody simply just shows up to church and takes in. That's completely against the biblical model. And again, did I say you need to head a really vibrant and growing ministry? No, but you are committed to serving the people. You are engaged relationally in all those one another's in Scripture. Highlight them in your Bible as you go through them. Love one another fervently from the heart. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Bear one another's burdens. Encourage one another as long as it is day, right? Pray for one another. Are these the kinds of things that you're engaged in, that I'm engaged in? If you still have your finger in Corinthians, you're fortunate. If not, turn back there again and look at uh, 1 Corinthians in chapter 12. And again, I, I, I put this before you just by way of reminder We'll move rapidly, but we need to see it. We need to be reminded. Beloved, when you were saved, God gave you a spiritual gift, at least one and typically many. Look at verse 7. But to each one, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. For the common good. Why were you given that gift? Well, it's for the common good of the body. It's not for your own exaltation. It is for the common good of the body of Christ. Look down at verse 11. But one and the same spirit works all of these things. All of what things? Well, he's just listed a bunch of spiritual gifts. He says, one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. God made you and gifted you as he saw fit. That's good news. You don't have to be somebody else. You don't have to be envious of somebody else's gifts. He gave you gifts so that you might edify this congregation and you serve as God has created you to serve. That is, that is reason to rejoice. As I said, nobody sits on the sideline. Verse 13, by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we we're all made to drink of one spirit. For the body's not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body, is it not for this reason any less a part of the body? And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, is it for any reason less a part of the body? What's he saying? Well, if we're all striving to be what everybody else is gifted in, if everybody had the same gift, we'd be a lopsided body, right? 
We might have a bunch of eyes, but no mouth and no tongue. Nobody wants to hop around on one leg. We need legs, right? And, and so he says in verse 16, if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, is it for any reason less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. Again, I want to really stress that. You need to help your children understand that. God created them just as they are. That little quirky, tweaky nose that they have, God's design. Help them to appreciate it. Teach them not to take their cues from all the magazines that are there, you know, right next to the checkout aisle. Help them to understand that God has made them unique, each one of them. But it goes beyond physical characteristics. This is saying that each one of you here as a member, as a follower of Christ, exists for the good of the others. And we labor to serve. We are, if I can put it back, if I can come back to the sermon I originally set out to preach, we are genuinely concerned for the body of Christ. Genuinely concerned. No casual attachments. You see, Paul thinks of Timothy and he reflects back on the words that he just wrote to the Philippians and he says, you know what, that guy, he will do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, Timothy will regard others as more important than himself. Timothy will mind the interests of others and not his own. And this is in direct contrast to the others who who are in Paul's circle, who are available to him at this point in Rome. There were other men, certainly, who shared Paul's heart, but not available to him in Rome. And, and, and Paul looks around, and he sort of sweeps together all the others that potentially could go to Philippi for him. And he says in verse 21, I can't send anybody else. Why? Because they all seek after their own interests and not those of Christ Jesus. I quoted earlier from 1 Peter 5. Some of you will be familiar with the text. You remember he says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. And then he starts giving us these contrasts. He says, not under compulsion. You shouldn't have to feel like this is something I gotta do. But instead, you should do it voluntarily according to the will of God. You shouldn't do this shepherding thing for sordid gain. That is, for love of money. You're pursuing wealth in this thing. You're just looking for a way that you can live an unaccountable life and people will pay you to just get up and talk for a little while. That is not why you should be doing this. He says instead, you should do it with eagerness. Some people do it for power. He says, you're not to lord it over those allotted to your charge, but you're to prove to be examples to the flock. Now, why does Peter say all of that? Well, again, number one, there are many, many, many false shepherds. In my youth, I used to think that everybody who named the name of Jesus in any sort of loosely affiliated way was, in fact, a Christian. I remember a country artist getting up to to, to accept some award, and he, he sang his song about 
mama's in the graveyard and papa's in the pen because mama was having an affair with some guy and papa drove his truck through the motel room and killed mama and he, the first words out of his mouth as he accepted his award, I just want to thank the good Lord for blessing me so much in my life. And I remember going, sweet, Garth Brooks is a Christian. Really lacking in discernment, I was. I've heard it about this rock star and that comedian. My friends, if there is not a life that even somewhat resembles the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no grounds for believing anybody's profession. There are a lot of false shepherds, a lot of wolves in sheep's clothing. And Paul says you can note them because they're after money and they're after power. They're after sex. They're after something. And it's not the interests of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even those who are, in fact, genuine shepherds, there are a lot of, 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 of pastors who, who do a lot of right things, but they're still doing it from a motivation of being needed, being loved, having authority, all kinds of things. And Paul, Peter says, that's not the way this is to be. Well, this is like some of the crowd in Philippians. Paul described them in chapter 1 and verse 15 well, actually, he, he, he describes them in verse 17. He says they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives. There were plenty of men available to Paul, but none of them were like-minded, none of them of kindred spirit. None of them had the interests of Christ at heart. And that's the way you know the true servant of God. He, he, he has the interests of his master at heart. And you see, Timothy was not using Jesus. He was serving Jesus. And Timothy only wanted the good of the Philippians and the glory of God. And these others that Paul looked at simply did not hold his confidence. They were spiritually suspect and their motives were impure. And Paul says, you've disqualified yourself. Timothy is my only man. So Timothy a genuine concern for the church. That's the first reason Paul tends or plans to send Timothy. There's a second reason, and that is that Timothy had an attitude of determined diligence in the cause of Christ. He had an attitude of determined diligence in the cause of Christ. Verse 22, he says to the Philippians, you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. You see, Timothy had the right motivations and therefore he was determined and he worked hard. And in contrast to those who were driven by their own selfish desires, Timothy had demonstrated to the Philippians before their very eyes his proven worth. He had been tested, as all shepherds should be, according to the scriptures. That's literally what this word means, this idea of proven worth. It means approved by testing. It was used in metallurgy for melting, taking, taking gold or taking brass or taking bronze, taking copper and melting it down to, to be sure that it was purified. It was approved. I never figured out how this works, but it's like taking the diamond and taking a 
a bite, right? Tim- Timothy had been tested and Paul knew that he was approved and so did the Philippians. He was genuine. He was pure. They had seen it. In other words, there's a weight behind this man's life. Timothy has gravitas. He's got a reputation, and it was a good one. And he was committed, Paul says, in working alongside of Paul in the furtherance of the gospel. He was an evangelist. He had preached the gospel in Philippi, and many of those Philippians owed their own salvation to the message that had been spoken by Timothy himself. And you know these people. You've seen them, these people who are tried and true. You've seen them in the church. I know you have. People who who are there week by week. People who give their time and their effort and their energy consistently. They're steady at the work. They're joyfully given to the work. They're not complaining in the work. They're dedicated to it. They're always making Christ known, whether they're at at home with their families or they're, they're in their place of employment or they're on vacation. It doesn't matter what they're doing. They're just about Jesus and about the furtherance of the gospel. They want to see Christ's kingdom growing and others added to the flock. This was Timothy. He's credible and he's diligent and he had been tried and he had passed and the Philippians were aware of it. See that word served? He served with me in the furtherance of the gospel. It's a word, duluo, which is a verb that simply means to labor as a slave. When you looked at Timothy, you saw something about his work ethic and his attitude. Paul says he worked like a slave for Christ, and he served me like a son. He was alongside of Paul. And being alongside of Paul meant hard work. It meant suffering. There was no cush job. And Timothy was all in. Paul goes on to describe him like a child. Young people, are you paying attention this morning? If you're still at home and you're under your parents, I want you to pay attention to what Paul says right here. He says, When I think about Timothy, if I were to draw any analogy, if I were to draw any comparison, Timothy was faithful, he was true, he was a servant. You know what he was like? He was like a child serving his father. Do you hear what Paul is saying in that? Young person, this is the way it used to be back before it was okay to tell your parents off. This is the way it used to be back before it was okay to entertain attitudes about the old man or to sort of curse your mother under your breath. Paul says, you know, when things are right, when things are as they should be, a child comes under a parent with respect and honor and faithfulness, and he or she gives himself to that father in service. See, that's all backwards today, too. I thought parents ran around like crazy trying to meet every demand of their child. No. Paul says, no, that's not the way it works. (laughs) 
Timothy came under me like a child, his father, to serve the Lord by serving me. He was submissive to me. When I told him to go, he would go. And when I asked him to stay, he would stay. And when I needed something brought to me, Timothy would get it and bring it. He was faithful. He was just like my son. Are you that kind of child? Timothy's a good example for you. Paul, of course, was Timothy's spiritual father, not his physical father. But he calls Timothy my true child in the faith, 1 Timothy 1.2. He calls Timothy my beloved son, 2 Timothy 1.2. He calls him my son. You saw in Corinthians where he called him beloved and faithful son. Paul was a father figure to Timothy. And I just think this is beautiful. There was this warm familial affection between these two, their, their hearts knit together. Timothy loving and respecting and honoring Paul and Paul delighted in this son in the faith who was so faithful and they were just, they were just knit together in every way, shape, or form. There is this loyalty. Paul doesn't present this as though it's like employer to employee. Timothy you know, eats well at my table, so I asked him to do some stuff for me because he should. I don't like freeloaders. That wasn't Paul's attitude. And he, he doesn't look at Timothy like somehow Timothy is just subservient to him, uh, you know, like a commander to, to a private or something, where he just barks out orders and Timothy goes, okay, and he does it for fear of reprisal. There's none of that. There's just love. And, and, a, and a love for Christ and a love for one another and a love for ministry. And again, this is the way it should be in the church. We're not doing things for any other reason than we delight in the Lord Jesus Christ and we long to minister to one another because we love one another sincerely. Paul saw Timothy as trustworthy and true, steady, consistent, determined, and he had ultimate confidence that Timothy was a man who knew how to carry his cross. I like Timothy because he helps us, doesn't he, in some ways. Because if you know anything about the pastoral epistles, Paul is often having to take his boot and put it proverbially in Timothy's rear to say, look... Timothy, get with the program, embrace your ministry, remember your calling, pay attention to your doctrine and to your life. You need to preach and you need to preach in season and out. I mean, Paul's really urging Timothy toward faithfulness. He tells him, look, don't be afraid. You've got you to engage this as a faithful servant of Christ. And Timothy wrestled with fear. He's just like you. He's just like me. And yet Timothy never gave in to that fear. Timothy did not abandon the Lord and he did not abandon Paul. He was faithful to the end. Here's Steve Lawson, quote, Timothy has been battle tested with Paul on the front lines of spiritual warfare. Though he is relatively young, only in his 30s, he has been well-educated in the school of hard ministry knocks and passed with flying colors. Timothy has the spiritual scars to prove his advanced degree. You see, Timothy is worthy of emulating, of imitating, because he had genuine concern for the church and because he diligently labored in the cause of Christ. 
There's a third reason and a final reason why Paul upholds Timothy in this passage. And that is that Timothy had an attitude of enduring loyalty and faithfulness in ministry for Christ. Timothy lasted. You know what the average stay, well, this is 30 years ago now, back when I was in school, but I remember taking a class where I was taught that the average stay of a pastor in the United States at a church was just around the two-year mark. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that. You might say shame on that pastor. We might say shame on the church. But for whatever the reason, ministry longevity is, is rare as hen's teeth. I mean, here's a guy who has gone through some difficulties, and he has stuck with it. He is faithful. He's been with Paul from the beginning and loyal to Paul from the beginning. Paul had so many people abandon ship on him. You remember a guy by the name of Demas, yes, who departed Paul for this present world. You remember that when he went through his first trial, nobody stood with him in that. And Paul, like Christ, says, may the Lord not hold it against them. Paul knew what it was to have defectors. Timothy was not a defector. He was at it, and he was at it till the end. I want you to look back at verse 19, mostly because I think this this bleeds through by way of implication. He, He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. And that's really what I want to emphasize here. I want to point out to you again that Timothy was sent by Paul. Timothy ranked himself under Paul. Not that he wasn't as equally saved or as equally as valuable to the Lord, but functionally speaking, it was Timothy's responsibility and his heart to come under the Apostle Paul's direction. He didn't insist on giving directions. He was just delighted to carry them out. If it would move the gospel forward, And so he says the same thing in verse 23. Look at it. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately. I mean, it almost sounds like Timothy has no say in this matter. Like like Paul just said, go. And Timothy said, you know, okay. Timothy, jump. How high? Paul says, I'm going to send him to you immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. You remember that Paul didn't know exactly what the Lord had for him, but he he suspected that he would, in fact, make it through this trial and be able to give himself again to the Philippians to minister to them. But I just love this about Timothy, that he served Paul and he was content to be in the background. And that will be true, brothers and sisters, for most of us. We will serve in the background, most often unnoticed. You say, yeah, it's easy for you to say. You get to stand up there and talk all the time. (laughs) I'm so in the background, it's not even funny. You know what it's like week by week? Hey, who you been listening to? Who's been teaching you this week? Oh, man, I heard a great message by Big. Great message by MacArthur. Sproul can really teach. I love it. I do love it because I am a bear of simple brain, and I'm thankful that the God, is, God has given me just this little podunky place called Meadow Vista. I mean, any place. I remember when we hired Charles, we said to him, Charles, what were your plans? We, we're, we're interviewing you. What, what were you thinking the Lord would do with you? He said, man, I was sure it was going to be three widows in Missouri. I love that. 
right? There are only so many rock stars in the faith, beloved. And I can only say these things and know that they're not self-serving because you know as well as I know. <laughs> you know, just, just, who are we? We are just, we're just slaves doing as we ought to do, yeah? We're just serving the king. This is his church, his people. If the Lord would see that this church would be better benefited by another, I'm pleased to step aside. And Alan was that way before me. You see, we serve in the background and we serve in relative obscurity. You go to MacArthur's message that he preached last week, there's 6.7 million views. You go to mine, there's 12. <laughs> and eight of them were my family members, right? <laughs> but I'll tell you this. Paul wanted to send somebody. He grabbed the obscure guy and he said, this guy's faithful. Not flamboyant. He doesn't draw thousands. He's not me, Paul says, but he is me because he's concerned about the right things and he's the right kind of guy and he's fully given to, to, to the good of the church and to work hard. He's faithful and he's loyal. And where others will say, yeah, Paul, I'll do it. And then they would go to Philippi and serve themselves. Paul says, I know that's not that way with Timothy. Paul wants to see if how things are going to turn out from him first. He's not about to let go of Timothy yet. He doesn't tell us why. I would assume most likely because he wanted Timothy there with him through the, the trial and, and to see how everything panned out. But as soon as he could, he wanted to send them. In fact, he's going to send Epaphroditus. We'll see that next week. Ahead of Timothy, he wants to send Epaphroditus back because of their deep concern and their love for him. And beloved, this was no small errand. Do you know how far it is from Rome to, to Philippi? It was 350 miles from the western side of the boot all the way down to the heel of the boot of Italy. That was 350. Then you jumped an 80-mile ocean voyage across to the tip of Greece, the top of Greece, and then you made your way out another 350 miles to get to Philippi. This was nearly an 800-mile trip. This wasn't all, all, you know, I got some miles with Southwest and I'll get them out to you this afternoon and then he can come back and report to me. I mean, this was danger. This was a grueling journey and he is just more than willing, Timothy is, to go. One commentator asked this. Did Timothy ever marry Did Timothy ever own a home? Did Timothy ever know the joy of children? Did Timothy ever settle down in an area long enough to sink some roots and develop long-standing friendships? 
Did Timothy ever know a leisurely retirement? The Bible doesn't answer any of those questions. It gives no indication that he, in fact, encountered any of that, which so much of modern evangelical fundamental people are living for. Beloved, again, Timothy was just a man of single-mindedness, and he wanted so much to be honorable to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was just following after Paul in all of that. And I, I realize that all of us are not called to be Timothys. Very few of us are. But we should value men like him, women like him. We should have high regard for them, high esteem for them. And we should allow ourselves to let our guard down enough to let their faithfulness sort of urge us forward to, to greater faithfulness to Christ. Don't dismiss them too quickly. This was not a man who had it as his highest aspiration to live a life of independence and self-determination. Timothy was a good soldier committed to pleasing his Lord. This wasn't a man who sought leisure and earthly pleasure. He was a hard-working farmer who was sowing in faith for a harvest yet to come. And he wasn't some sort of carefree, floating, unattached, directionless individual going through life. He was a disciplined athlete with an eye to the prize. And while each one of us is not called to Timothy's life, each one of us has been called to be genuinely concerned for the church, to be determined and diligent in serving Christ, to endure faithfully in that work all the way to the end. And beloved, I, I can say this with the clearest of consciences. I am so thankful to be surrounded by so many who demonstrate these things over and over again. Many of you have a reputation here. Many of you, many of you are upheld in this church as those who have proven worth. You've been here a long time. You've been through the battles. You've served faithfully. You did it then. You're still doing it now. You haven't given up. You're laboring for the cause of Christ. And you should be commended for that because it's right in the footsteps, not only of the Lord Jesus Christ and not only of Paul, but also of Timothy. And I want to say to you that you, you who understand the cost of ministry and you have paid it, I want to say to you that you are useful and you are profitable in the master's hands and it does not get missed by the shepherds here or by your brothers and sisters in Christ. You are a vessel fit for honor, and may we as a church continue to follow the pattern laid out for us by men like these. May, may we as a church continue to excel still more. May we be like Timothy and like Epaphroditus. Let us seek, brothers and sisters, still a greater and greater heart, an enlarged heart for the kingdom of Christ, for the things above, for the work of the ministry, for Christ's church on earth. May we be vested in the few short years we have in that which matters so much to Jesus. And may it be said of us as it was of Timothy that we are a people of proven worth. Let's pray as the music team comes forward. 
Our Lord, we thank you that it is you who is at work in your people, both to, to will and to work for your good pleasure. We realize that neither Paul nor Timothy nor anyone else could ever serve you in a manner appropriate, could ever walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Were it not you who called us and who justified us, who gifted us, and who works mightily within us to will and to work for your good pleasure, Lord, we know that every good that we do is a testimony to your goodness. For there is not one good, not even one, but Lord, you do work good things in your people and you have converted us and changed us and it is our heart's desire, we echo it, to love your church and to want to be diligent and faithful and loyal to you to the end. Help us to do that, we pray. And Lord, we know that we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which you prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Lead us, Lord, down that path that we might fulfill all those things that you have called us to be and that ultimately, Lord, the banner over this church would be that we are a faithful people, a people of proven worth, a people who walk according to Christ's likeness, a people who magnify you and put you on display. Lord, may our love abound still more and more and may we serve you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength for you are worthy of everything that we have. Accomplish these things we ask for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.